five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Don't Let Go Canada Coalition. For 60 years, Canada has been a space leader. We help build the International Space Station and land astronauts on the moon. Back on Earth, we leverage our space capabilities every day to push boundaries in medicine, communications, and environmental monitoring. The clear vision and commitment of previous governments helped drive this forward, but now our country faces a decision point and we need to act. Please visit don'tletgocanada.ca and join the campaign to help us keep innovation, jobs, and our best and brightest in Canada. The universe needs more Canada. Don't let go, Canada. This is a special episode of the SpaceQ podcast. This recording is from the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's Ready for Launch, Preparing Canada for a Future in Space Conference, which was held in Ottawa on October 16, 2018. In this recording, a fireside chat, The New Space Age, the CBC's Bob McDonald interviews Kenneth Hodgkins, the director for the Office of Space and Advanced Technology of the U.S. Department of State. In it, the discussion centers on the commercialization of space, including how Canada is being considered an emerging launching state. Listen in. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be here this morning at, as part of this conference. As Dave mentioned, space has always been my favorite topic. And I, I just confirmed with Mac Evans a wonderful fact that I, I like to throw around whenever I'm speaking at an American conference. Two, two facts. First, that Canada's been in space since 1962. Whenever I say that at an American conference, they always say, what, what, that can't be right, that can't be right. And the other is that the, uh, it, 50 years ago, next year, when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, the foot pads of the lunar lander were built in Montreal. So as Mark Garneau likes to say, Canada was first to set foot on the moon. <laughs> so... <laughs> so I'm proud to be Canadian and proud, proud of our, America, our incredible Canadian technology, our heritage, our, our time in space. And I'm pleased to be here with uh, Kenneth Hodgkins, who is the director of the Office of Space and Advanced Technology in Department of State. Uh, he's involved in space policy for where the Americans are going next and uh, also with uh, GPS systems and uh, the future of that. So, uh, Mr. Hodgkins, welcome and thank you very much thank for joining you. us. Now, it seems that in terms of the American uh, policy, it, it's been changing over the decades. We've gone from, uh, well, who would have believed 50 years ago that 50 years in the future we would not be on the moon celebrating the 50th anniversary? We can't go there yet today. Right. So there's been talk about going back to the moon, but there's also been talk of going to Mars. But now we're back to the moon again. So 
Tell me about that. Where is the, the space policy right now? Okay, well, thank you very much for, for having me. Um, uh, I, I just want to make a confession. I'm, I'm from Maine, a longtime Boston Bruins fan, and <laughs> I feel like I'm in the, the evil empire with, uh, with the Montreal Canadiens, and I only, and I checked, and, we're, and the Bruins are still ahead of the Canadiens in standing, so I'm feeling much better about being here. But, no, but, but seriously, um, the uh, th there are a number of things that I the, the, that I wanted to um, to touch on because of the earlier conversations that you were having. And the biggest thing is the commercial um, the, the commercial evolution in space, and it's gone beyond just the the traditional government and prime contractor. Um, relationship. Now we have entrepreneurs that are out there who are spending their own money to do new and, and innovative things. And the policy evolution in the United States is taking, is taking that into account. And, and, and one of my jobs is to look at what the international implications are and what, what do we need to do from a foreign policy as well as international law perspective. And one of the big things that, that, that I wanted to emphasize up front, and, and obviously there are some other things, Bob, that you want to talk about, but one of the big things is, is things have changed so radically in the past two or three years because we're looking at today four, four new launching states, Canada, the UK, New Zealand, and Australia. And I was here in September uh, to have consultations with, with those four countries to talk about what it means to be a launching state, um, how, how we can coordinate what we're, what we're trying to do, um, how do we look at uh, you know, commercial ventures, in this case, the United States companies using Nova Scotia, in this case, as a staging ground for their own commercial launches, and what are the implications for opening up a whole new level of capacity for, um, for government as well as non-government launching of, of, of satellites. Uh, you know, right now we have a handful of countries that have launching capabilities, a handful of, of private companies that have launching capabilities. Now we're looking at opening up a whole new era of where we can be launching, you know, hundreds and hundreds of small satellites in large and larger constellations. And now Canada is going to be in the middle of that with the, with the initiative of, of, of uh, the Maritime Launch uh, Services and, and uh, putting, putting a launch capability in Nova Scotia. Wow. So how would that actually work in, in terms of the, the integration of the American government, the private companies, and the Canadian? Well, we, we, we already have one venture um, working out of New Zealand called Rocket Lab. And they've, they've staged several launches already. Um, and the, there, there are a couple of things. First of all, we have technology safeguards agreement. So it means that in order for a U.S. company to stage a launch on a foreign territory, we've got to have certain um, provisions to protect our technology. I mean, that, that's just a function of our export controls. Many of you are painfully aware of ITAR. Luckily, I'm not in charge of that. but. Uh, <laughs> I have the fun part of the space portfolio at, at, at the State Department. Uh, but we have this technology safeguards agreement. Then you have the commercial uh, contractual um, 
interactions. And then we have to figure out um, with the, in this case with New Zealand, who is going to be liable in the event damage is caused at launch, who's going to be responsible, who's going to register the satellites, because all those have big, they, they have huge international and foreign policy implications. And that's kind of the model that we would be using, again, in this case with, with Canada, is looking at those, those things and make sure that we can you know, create a predictable and transparent international environment for all of these new commercial ventures. Well, the, uh, what, what kind of time frame are you talking about here? Uh, well, like I said, we've ar we already have the um, we already have the operation in New Zealand. I, with Canada, I'm not quite sure what the um, uh, what the time frame is. I think there are two or three at least two or three U.S. companies that are interested in using the spaceport. But then it's really up to the Canadian government and the and the Canadian private sector to to kind of break ground and get, and, and get that moved around, and, and maybe there's somebody here that has a better better notion of what that what that is. Now you're also involved in uh, the GPS system, mm -hmm. which will require a whole constellation of small sats. Tell me about that. How do you see that evolving in the future? Well, GPS is interesting, and and I want to go to an earlier point the the earlier panel was making about military versus civilian. The, the, there are two major trends that I, I see since basically since the fall of the Soviet Union. One is the increasing number of commercial ventures. And today, you know, the commercial investment in space outstrips government investment globally. That's the first thing. And then the, the second thing is, is that the, 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 the lines between what you would call military use of space and civilian use of space has blurred. And that, and that even goes way back to the 60s, where the, the first weather satellites were built by the Air Force. Um, once we declassified um, uh, remote sensing technology and allowed NASA to build the Landsat program, and Canada was one of the first countries to have a Landsat system, and you have RadarSat, you know, those capabilities, while we ha had a firewall between what the military was doing and what we were doing in, in, in the civilian realm has carried over to a whole variety of other things, GPS being one of the big ones. And the, you know, the GPS system obviously has a heavy military component. It's a, it's a force multiplier. There's no question about that. But the civilian applications on the, with the open signals has far outstripped, in many respects, the, the military side. And, and, and so we've worked with DOD to come up with a whole system of coordinating with the Russians, the Chinese, India, Japan, and the Europeans to create an interoperable kind of system of systems. And so in 15 years, you'll have 100 satellites um, broadcasting two common civilian signals free of charge, and you won't know the difference. 
and so we created through the UN the International Committee on Global Navigation Satellite Systems that, that works with not only the, the current and future providers of, of these um, systems, but also with the user groups. And we've come up with kind of basic um, principles on interoperability, transparency, sharing information so that the user community, the, the non-military user community around the world can take maximum advantage of, 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 this, of the systems. And it only makes sense because we, you know, we had a, we, we had our first policy on GPS in 1996. We had the second policy, I think. Um, yeah, now, now, now I've lost track. But I mean, basically, uh, during the Bush administration uh, and then the Obama administration, that codifies the the, the importance of the civilian uh, civilian segment of of GPS. And the other countries, Russia, I have to say, I mean, Russia, China, India, Japan, and the European Union have all bought into that general concept. And, and so the people that are really, really going to benefit is everybody here in this room. You know, your, your iPhone is receiving signals now from all of those systems. And you don't know, you don't know the difference, but it gives you more reliability. It opens up huge markets for, um, receiver manufacturers and other applications. Well, okay, so that's that's here on Earth. Now, what about the, the private government partnership when it comes to going further out into deep space? Because we're seeing now the emergence of companies that are building their own rockets that are much cheaper than the kind that, say, NASA is building, and uh, they're doing it very well. So are we going to see a partnership, or are we going to see a handoff where the government will say, okay, you just go do that? Well, I don't know if it's going to be a, a direct handoff, but it, at least in, in, in the U.S., what, what we... Um, what we decided is we're going to NASA will lay out kind of basic things that they need, and then they and then and then they've told the private companies build something that we can buy. So it's like you know Ford building a car and you go and buy it, as opposed to going to the factory and saying you've got to put a widget here and a widget there and and, and whatever. And so now what we have. Is a, is a situation where companies like SpaceX and then Boeing, Planetary Resources, Bigelow, they, they're all investing private money uh, to build things that they think, A, will, will make them money, and B, will be attractive to, to NASA. And you know, the decision is made, has been made that we're going to move beyond low Earth orbit. The space station, I know you, you, you wanted to ask about that. I mean, the space station right now, we have commitments from the partners, I think, to utilize it through 2024. NASA's looking at maybe 2028. But the, the real issue is, what do we do beyond that? I mean, we've been there, done that. How, how do we capture the imagination of the, of the general public to continue to support uh, the space program? Because if you, if you strip away kind of the big projects, everything else you probably could do commercially. And, and so what we're looking at is how do we maintain the space station coalition, maybe bring in other countries, and go to the moon, Mars, and other celestial bodies. You're going to do all of that? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'll probably be retired by then. Yeah, but that's but a whole, 
that, that's a problem for somebody else. But but the um, but but the other element to this is that every that this administration recognizes that there is a commercial component component to this that's going to have to be integrated into the overall architecture. And this is again part of what what my office is trying to do is make the case with the international community that they obviously will continue to do the traditional things in space from low Earth orbit, but we have to be looking out, outward. And that will stimulate you know, greater interest in young people you know, in, the, in science and technology and engineering. It will stimulate e economic growth. There are things that, uh, that can benefit the global community. It's not going to happen overnight, obviously. But if you don't have a vision, then it begs the question of why you're doing it. So are you suggesting then that after 2024 or 2028, whatever the, the end date is for NASA and the space station, that it'll go entirely commercial? Uh, they're, I, they're looking at that. How would that I think, work? But I'm not really sure. That, now, now I, I know just enough to be dangerous, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but no, they, they are looking at that. I mean, it's going to be a, a big... Um, it's going to be a big challenge. Mr. Evans, I know, is you know, having been and Mr. Laporte have been intimately involved in the space station. What are you going to do with that big structure at the end of the day? And I'm not quite sure what the answer is because I'm really not an expert. But what I do know is is that we already have in place uh, an architecture of a uh, a relationship with the space station partners that we want to try to build upon and have kind of a shared, like I say, a shared vision on what we want to do. But are there commercial companies knocking on your door right now saying, hey, we'll, we'll take it? I don't think so. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> not, not right as, yet. As, as an economic or as a business model, the space station isn't going to turn a huge profit for you know a lot of people. It's, it's just so expensive to maintain and get there that I'm just wondering how that model would Yeah, work. I, I, again, like I say, I think that, that you know, there, is, there is a study that's being, being done right now uh, internally on what we want to do in, in the future. Obviously, our partners in the Space Station Coalition are going to have to buy into that. But the, again, that's really not... I, I mean, at this stage, we at the, at the State Department don't have a big role in, in that other than saying, okay, when, when you guys are ready to do something, we're prepared to, to, to go out diplomatically. So that takes us on to the moon. Take us through that, um, the current return to the moon policy. Well, what happened, <clears throat> what happened is during the Obama administration, they, they decided that, uh, you know, they wanted to develop new technologies to demonstrate how humans can go beyond, beyond the moon. And there, were, there was, you know, there, there was a concept of going to an asteroid, capturing it, bringing it back, putting it into um, orbit around the moon, uh, and then have astronauts go out there mm -hmm. and and do experiments on on the asteroid. The Trump administration looked at this and decided, well, maybe that's not such, a, you know, not, maybe that's not such a great idea. Why don't we kind of ratchet it back and go back to the moon? And this is the gateway you, you had the um, you, you had on the screen earlier today. That was kind of the gateway concept that we're looking at now. 
And the gateway would be a facility orbiting the moon that would be open for others to use it either on a commercial basis or, uh, or a government basis that would allow you to stage missions from there to the moon surface or from there beyond. And that's kind of the evolution of, of, of the thinking. And that just goes back to my earlier point, which is we've, we've already done it around low Earth orbit. What, what, what are the new things that are going to be really, really visionary and create um, you know, greater opportunities for, for the commercial sector as well as the government sector? Where does Canada fit into that? Well, I mean, Canada. You know, the, the, you know, I started in this in this business in 1980, and the first thing that I worked on, uh, and I was not at the State Department at the time. I was with the National Environmental Satellite Service, NOAA, that runs weather satellites. But the first thing I was involved in was radar, <clears throat> and we had uh, an idea that maybe we could provide an instrument uh, for uh, for radar sat and you know that was kind of, i mean that the you know radar remote sensing is is a tremendous capability and we had tried it with CSAT that that satellite failed after 100 days but Canada had this vision that you know there was a future in radar remote sensing and so we worked on that. I worked on that. Kospar Sarsat was an, another um, kind of groundbreaking uh, capability that Canada was deeply involved in with us, and at that time the Soviet Union and, uh, and, and France. And then, of course, we had the Canada arm for the shuttle and for the, um, for the space station. So in my view, the, if, if you look at the array of things that we want to do, going to the moon, Mars, other celestial bodies, you have all these capabilities that Canada has been able to put together that would definitely be a, a part of that big architecture. I mean, you're going to need a remote arm. You're going to need the ability to sense or, or take pictures of the moon, Mars, other celestial bodies in order to stage operations there. So I, I, I just see, the, the, I see this as a continuum in terms of the innovations that, that Canada has had since I, you know, since I started and, and, even bef and even before that. By the way, we're very good at keeping satellites up because our original satellite, Alouette 1, is still up there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> still up. Explorer 1 and Sputnik have since fallen out of orbit, but we're still up there. When we put something up, it stays up, right? It just stays up. Um, there, we, we've noticed that um, on the ground, the current administration is very much put America first, American made, everything is looking inward, almost isolationist, and Canada in a way has become a bit of the enemy in terms of trade, and yet space has been a model of international cooperation. Mm -hmm. Do you see that kind of put America first thing leaking into space policy? Well, yeah, I mean, I... I in in all of the, in, in all of the international, I mean, all of the interagency policy making, it really ha hasn't taken that kind of of tone. Now, maybe, may, you know, maybe publicly it, it has, but it's, but we've we've made the case successfully that 
that you really can't do anything big without everybody else at, at some level. And so, you know, the, the decision to go to the moon obviously is going to in, include an international component. Um, the, the second policy that the president signed off on uh, was looking at regulatory reform not only domestically but but how you know how we can create more opportunities for the pri for the US private sector to partner with with the international community obviously we want to make money but we realize everybody else wants to make money uh, and the third policy that was was released in June on space traffic management there is a heavy uh, international component and th that so for those of you who have read, read the policy or, or haven't read the policy, there's what I call a certain amount of, of um, housekeeping that's being done, which is who, who is going to be responsible now for providing orbital information, information on space objects to avoid collisions and, and to gr add greater uh, transparency. And so you have the Department of Defense, the Federal Aviation Administration, uh, and NASA involved in that exercise. So that's kind of an internal one. But that, but, but that recognizes that once we come up with a, a domestic approach, we want to take it internationally and get buy-in from everybody else that this makes sense. Because we realize that, you know, we, I mean, yeah, we want to, we, we want to set the model for how we do these things. Uh, because we we have the capacity to do that, and and but we want to also put together a model that other countries th that we're certain other countries would actually embrace. And so the second part of that is, is again this is something my office is responsible for is by December we'll have an international strategy that would involve. Uh, the ITU, the International Standards Organization, as well as the UN Outer Space Committee. And in the policy itself that the President signed, the UN, uh, those three organizations were specifically mentioned in, in, the, in the policy. So we, we take that as kind of a, direct, a directive, if you will, to incorporate the international component to this. And, and I, I, I mean, I don't want to oversell it, but on the other hand, this is fairly significant because this whole concept of, of space traffic management takes into account, again, the earlier panel was, was talking about this, the number of space actors that have, have um, uh, are now in space. And we have 60 space agencies, but we've got, we've got these constellations of hundreds, if not thousands, of small satellites. Um, all it's going to take is one of those to, to knock out you know, a hundred, you know, several hundred billion dollars worth, or a million dollars worth of investment in one satellite, and this is one of our concerns, and that served the basis for this policy review and the announcement in in June. So, um, yeah, I, I would say stay tuned because we'll we're, we're going to figure something out to <laughs> to approach. Canada as well as other countries. What about the, uh, related to that, the, uh, it was mentioned earlier, the, the cleaning up of space junk. I mean, is, there, is there any emerging policy on, on how to handle your own satellite when you put it up? What happens when it reaches the end of its lifetime? Who's responsible for that? Who polices it? 
Well, there's no really policing function. I mean, we, we have, uh, in, in the U.S., we have domestic policy. In order, in order to get a license for a commercial launch, for um, a FCC license, or for a remote sensing license, the commercial <laughs> operator has to demonstrate what they'll do at the end of the life of that satellite. And it, what it means is either deorbiting it so it burns up or moving it to a graveyard orbit. So, so we, we have that. Um, what we don't have, and it's hard to, to do, is what do, you what do you do to take care of all the little stuff? And that, that is, is a big challenge. And internationally, we have a set of guidelines um, that were, were adopted in, in, the, uh, in, in the UN. I mean, they're kind of high level guidelines, but I think generally everybody recognizes that you have to do things, you know, like rocket body parts. I mean, they're always exploding. Um, but, but now they've taken uh, actions to, de um, you know, to, to release the fuel so that, the, you know, the, the body parts that are continually cooling and heating, cooling and heating aren't, aren't blowing up. So we, we have taken some international action there. But this, this space traffic management policy is going to be looking at that as well. In, in terms of what you can do technically, not only to track um, to track stuff up there, whether it's operational or not operational, but also what what would be kind of the best practices that we could all adopt, because it is going to be a continuing um, challenge. Okay, so again, uh, going back to the deep space uh, part here, we've got the Gateway Project. Um, what about beyond that? Like, what's, Is that the funding at the moment just for Gateway? Because I, I haven't heard much about the technology to actually get down to the surface or what to do once you're on the surface. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I apologize. I, I don't know all, all of the details. I just know kind of the general the general concept. But what I do know, and this is what, where we've had extensive conversations with the with, with industry, is they, you know, we've got companies like Planetary Resources that want to go to an asteroid and bring stuff back. Bigelow Industries wants to build an inflatable habitat to go on on the moon. Um, SpaceX wants to do a demonstration project on a controlled reentry to the surface of, of Mars. And those are kind of the, 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 those are the things that right now are kind of driving, in my view, driving what the overall space architecture is going to be. And this goes back to the other question of like the international treaties. What, what, what are the implications of having private operations on the moon, on Mars, other celestial bodies. Who's going to authorize and supervise those things under Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty? What, what do you do for planetary protection under Article 9, where you have to demonstrate you aren't contaminating another celestial body, and whatever you bring back isn't going to con contaminate the Earth? And those are all things that you know we're looking at in terms of our domestic um, our domestic regulations, but what we want to do is make sure that 
these companies, if they, if they want to sell their services to other countries or partner with other countries, that their, um, their investments are going to be safe and that they have a transparent and predictable environment. And that was part of the discussions we had in September here in Ottawa with, with the UK, New Zealand, uh, Canada and Australia as, as new and emerging uh, launching states. The, um, uh, where was I going? The, in terms of uh, international cooperation, there are two big elephants in the room. Uh, one is the Russian space program, the other one is the Chinese space program. How is the U.S. going to be integrating with that in the future? Well, it's, I mean, this is a complicated, <laughs> I'm making the obvious seem profound. This is complicated. <laughs> um, there, are two, there are two aspects to it. The first one is with, with Russia, they're already part of the space station program. And they're the only way we can get our astronauts up there. And with the, the failure uh, last week of the Soyuz, um, I, I don't know what the, uh, what the internal thinking is at, at NASA, but my understanding is that the astronauts probably have about, the ones that are up there have about 200 days left before they have to come back. And the question will be, there's no way SpaceX and Boeing will be ready, I don't think, to send astronauts up there. So they, you don't think they'll accelerate their program? I, 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 again, I'm not an expert in, in this, but I, I'll, all I know is I think the first like, test launch isn't until next, next summer. Um, and so we're, we're looking at having the astronauts that are up there come back, which they can. I mean, there's already a Soyuz capsule to bring them back, but they, they're going to have to go into kind of a housekeeping mode uh, if there's nobody else that goes up there. And so that's, so that's, that's complicated because, um, you know, I mean, everybody's fully aware of our relationship just overall with, with Russia. But the, as you say, you know, the 800-pound gorilla or elephant in the room is, all right, on the one hand, we have issues with, with Russia at one level, security and what, whatever. But on the other hand, we have a practical issue, which is what NASA is saying, is saying, look, guys, you can do what you, what you want, but you've got to understand, <laughs> they're the only ways we can get our guys up there unless we get a slingshot or a trampoline. I mean, that's, that's, right now, that's where, where we're stuck. With China, it's another thing. It, it, it's another issue. And the issue is, like for, for example, on GNSS, we have a really good relationship with the Chinese on interoperability between GPS and their system, Beidou. We have uh, annual consultations with the Chinese on civil space cooperation. But there still you know, are the, the, the technology transfer issues, um, NASA. You know, NASA has to get has to get certified by Congress to to engage in any kind of bilateral activity uh, um, based on on a law that was passed in 2012. NASA does it; they consider it to be a transactional cost now, it's just the cost of doing business. Their cooperation is rather, you know, is pretty much modest. Uh, although we do exchange 
space situational awareness data with, with the Chinese. But the real issue, and this is something that, you know, the U.S., Canada, the, you know, the, the Western Alliance, if you will, will have to look at, which is after the space station comes down, if it does, but I mean, if once it's decommissioned, the Chinese are going to be the only ones with a, a permanent human presence orbiting orbiting the Earth, and what are, those, what are the implications there? And how do we, how do we manage those uh, in terms of, do we cooperate with the Chinese? Do we not cooperate? I mean, it, 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 it's not an easy equation I, to, to, to solve. How did this happen? How did this happen when well, we're at the stage right now where the, the, the country that was first on the moon and so far ahead in space cannot get back up into space, even up to the space station or back to the moon, 50 years after landing there? Well, the, uh, you know, the, the, the decision was made to, to stop the shuttle program in 2000. The, the, the decision was made that the shuttle program would stop in 2011. And the whole idea was we were going, NASA was going to build its own um, human-rated uh, launch capability. And the, the, the decision was made that that's too expensive. What we're going to do is um, we'll, we'll pay the Russians, as, as we had even when the shuttle was there, uh, we'll pay the Russians to continue to take Humans up to the station will continue to use European resupply and the Japanese resupply. And in the meantime, we would build our own, cap our own capability. Which is way over budget and behind schedule. Yeah, and, and so then the, the decision was made, well, what we'll do is we'll, like I said, we'll continue to use the Russians, but in the meantime, we're going to incentivize the private sector to come up with something that we, we can use, and then they, they can use it to you know send space tourists up. So that's kind of where, you know that's kind of where we are, and it, it had to do with changes of, of administration, changes of, of um, priorities, um, and and then you know kind of the the, the budgetary situation. Hmm. So is, where's the vision? Well, I mean, like I say, I think the, the, the I think the, 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 you know, the president, the president has talked about space like four or five times. I mean, he had it in his inaugural address. So, there, and then subsequent um, statements to Congress, and now, and he set up the National Space Council. Uh, the vice president chairs that, and just so you know, I think on October 23rd, there'll be either the third or fourth meeting of the Space Council, which is all held, um, uh, it's all held uh, publicly, and you can live stream it on the internet and, and, and whatever. So there's, there is a, a vision there in terms of the commercial part of space um, and, and, the, and the civil part. And this is what you know, we're trying to do. The, the president's made it clear he wants, to, he wants something in place to send humans American footprints with you know Canadian you know Canadian soles on the boots. <laughs> uh, 
to, you know, to, the bottom. To, to, yeah, to the to the moon or, or or to Mars. So I think that's the vision. That's kind of the the international uh, message that we've been trying to to, to send, which is we want to go beyond low Earth orbit and we want to look at other 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 things to do. Understanding that we still need to do the, you know, the now kind of the the workmanlike stuff, remote sensing, telecommunications, environmental monitoring. Great. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com/spacecube. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Cube. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.